Hello and welcome to another episode of the Daily Remedy Podcast. Today we're here with patient Lori Engel. She has an interesting story and is at a very unique place in her time. And I think it's best that we hear it directly from her. And today, after we hear her story, we're going to discuss end-of-life care for patients with chronic pain who are unable to receive the medications that they need and deserve. And with that, I'd like to welcome Lori. Thank you for having me, Jay. Appreciate it. So why don't you begin by telling us your medical history and how it transpired to where you are now? Well, when I was in college, I injured my knee and ended up having a series of surgeries that kind of set me up for uh, just one procedure after another after another. I've had roughly 25 surgeries on my knee. And then I got breast cancer when I was 27 and had a double mastectomy, but no radiation or chemo, just the sur surgery. But I did have implants put in. And that's where my health issues really took a nosedive. I uh, didn't, my body didn't accept them well. I went through uh, six sets and I was working at a horse farm at the time and got kicked in the chest and one of my implants ruptured and that silicone ended up traveling through my body, ended up in my lungs and I had to have a thoracotomy and a medial sternotomy to take lymph nodes out that were irritated and filled up with the silicone. And so I went on disability when I was 36 years old. And the knee issues continued on. Never got any better. I can't have a replacement. I'm allergic to the metal that they use. And they said, well, your only options are amputation or live with it and we'll treat the pain. You might be more mobile with the amputation, but your pain level probably won't be better. So I opted to keep my leg. I got lucky in that I had a personal care physician that took care of me for 30 some years. And even though he's semi-retired, he kept me on. And things are going along. Okay, getting my scripts every month, not having too much of an issue. And then in September, I started getting rapidly short of breath. I went to the urgent care, not thinking it was anything that big. And they immediately kicked me over to the ER. And when I was in the ER, I mentioned to the ER doc that, well, you know, I've had this lymph node issue. Maybe you should do a, a CT just to check and see if maybe something's wrong. And they ran a CT scan, and the ER doc came back in saying, well, I've got some really bad news. It looks like you've got lung cancer, and it looks like it's spread to your bones. And I was just completely taken aback. The lymph node had enlarged quite a bit over a period of six years that they were concerned about. That got me kicked over to oncology. And they ran a PET scan that came back okay, so didn't have lung cancer. But my white blood count was still really bad. 
and they decided to trace that down, did a bone marrow biopsy along with a biopsy of my L1, L11, which uh, T11 and L3. And it turns out that I have AML. And I have a really, really about the worst kind of AML you can get. And I knew that chemotherapy was never going to be an option when they said I'd have to be in the hospital for probably four to five months. That just didn't seem like an option that I thought would go well for me. And so I requested to go directly into hospice. Hmm. And, and how old given, were you at this time? I'm 65 right now. And how old were you at that time? I'm. It was just this past fall. So got on to hospice, called up the oncology office, said, well, can you refer me to a hospice company? Because I looked after both my parents until they passed, so I'd never used hospice before. And they suggested this company. I called them up. The nurse came out. They seemed very nice. And I gave her my list of meds that I was on. And she said, well, I have to hand this over to our medical doctor. And I figured, well, this is hospice. I shouldn't have any issue. Well, their medical doctor uh, didn't agree with what I was taking. And... She said that Oxycontin was a terrible drug. It was a dangerous drug. And even though I'd been on these drugs 23 years, been stable, everything's going good, bowels are working well, everything's going great. Except now I have some more pain because of the cancer in my spine. And the medical doctor said, nope, I'm not prescribing that. We're going to switch over to MS Cotton. And I told them, well, I'd been on that before. Made me sick to my stomach. Didn't matter. And they switched me. And the pharmacist even alerted the doctor that she was cutting my MME by 12%. And the doctor didn't really seem to give a flying crap. She said she would not prescribe what I was on. She didn't care that I was sick. And this went on for a week and a half. And I finally got up the courage to fire them. Hired a company that my insurance recommended. And they immediately restored my meds. And have been treating me, thankfully, wonderfully since then. So not even hospice is going to spare you from the opioid problem. Well, let's delve into that a little bit. Playing devil's advocate, what concerns did this initial physician have that prompted such a drastic change in cutting your MMEs by 12%? She just said that Oxycontin was a terribly dangerous drug and she would never prescribe it. And I mentioned about cutting my MME, and she just seemed to brush it off. In fact, the first time, she wouldn't even speak to me. The nurse said, well, the doctor won't speak to you because she's already made up her mind, so there's nothing 
to discuss. So let's break that down a bit. This physician would see you for the initial consultation and she would work you up. But when it came to matters of prescribing, she suddenly became distant. Is, is that a fair assessment? Yes. I never saw her in person. This is okay. just the hospice doctor that the nurses get the list of meds that you're on. The hospice doctor re reviews them and then moves forward from there as to what your symptoms are and what your Certainly. issues are. So without uh, assessing you clinically or evaluating you in person, uh, effectively it was a chart review. And Correct. from there, um, it was a decision to change your medications. Um, in situations like that, a lot of times the decisions are not clinical. They're more litigious in nature. Is that what you felt? Yes. Yep. Did you... I, and she gaslit me saying that no other hospice doctor in the Twin Cities would prescribe OxyContin. She just, I don't know, maybe she lost a relative to this drug. I have no idea why she was just so focused on it. But she was and there was no changing her mind. Do you have a history of substance dependency or anything that would give concern? No. Nope. So and I and, and apologize for asking in such a blunt way, but I wanted to just let the audience know that in many ways, you are a patient that have no red flags, no concerning symptoms, no early prescription fills, no multi-doctoring, no pharmacy shopping. Uh, it, it boggles my mind to see how this could happen. And I'm, I'm catching myself almost trying to find justifications for this physician and i know that it's kind of revealing certain biases that i have and i'm wondering do you feel a certain way where you felt like why is this happening am i doing something i did i wondered i'm like why am i being singled out i thought hospice meant you, you have whatever it takes to get rid of your pain and this doctor wasn't even willing to discuss the issue. She just had a line in the sand and and even though 23 years, never an early refill, always one doctor, I, I just, I am like the model patient. Yeah. And when I explained to her, I said, I have bone cancer in my spine that is keeping me up at night. I'm waking up in tears. And it. she just said that's not her issue. She told you point blank that that's not her issue, yep. even though she is yep. the physician overseeing your hospice care. That, that's yep. very interesting. Did they ever, the physician, the assistant, uh, any of the administrators of this hospice company, did they ever come across as too honest where effectively they would just say, well, we don't want to take the legal risk. We don't want the DEA down our backs. Uh, did they ever no. say that? Okay. No, they never. And I explained, I said, I'm pretty savvy. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. I read all the pain books. I have your book. I've got Dr. Ibsen's book. I'm very well versed. I'm the daughter of a doctor. 
I grew up around medicine my whole life. And here I am, a model patient that out of the blue is being told you have less than six months to live. And yet I'm still fighting this battle. Did you try to present any educational materials or inform the physician of your prescription history, of your compliance with the treatment plans to date? Did anything help? No, I was, uh, I told her, you know, obviously she'd already looked at the PDMP. She knew I only had one prescriber. Her interpretation was that he just wasn't a good doctor. And I'm like, he's the person who kept me alive all these years and kept me from not taking the path most of us with chronic pain think about because he did keep me comfortable and kept me active because he prescribed. I was able to stay active, stay as healthy as I could, given the circumstances. And it's pretty sad when you think of a terminal diagnosis as being a blessing. Yeah. Because I thought, well, at least now I'm not going to end up in a nursing home for 10 years waiting for my body to give out. I've got a short, quick trip, even though it's 20 years too soon. Uh, this is a way I look at it as God's way, giving me a way out. So where are you now in terms of your state of mind and quality of care? Are you getting the adequate pain relief that you need? Yes, they've been very, very good about keeping me comfortable. I uh, My back pain is getting worse and the cancer has spread to my pelvis now. But I was at a dog show this weekend, so I'm still able to get out and about. Yes. And I... Uh, I have a lot of shortness of breath, which is from the low uh, platelet count, low red blood cell count that goes along with AML. But I just, each day's a blessing. Each day I can get out of bed. Yeah. How did this ordeal affect your long-term prognosis? Do you feel that there were certain disabilities or certain symptoms or characteristics of pain that worsened as a result of what you had to go through? Well, I pretty much just always tried to stay active. And my when I was on my medication, it kept my pain down to around a two. And I was on uh, a significant MME and let's just say over 500 and I was able to stay at that. My doctor, I didn't have any problem with insurance, didn't have any problem with the pharmacy, but I knew any data could be taken away. I no. knew literally every month was, is this the month I'm going to lose my care? Is this the month the pharmacy says no? And that's a horrible thing to live with. Yeah uncertainty yeah the the uncertainty is an exacerbating factor no doubt what legal actions 
do you think you could have taken to protect yourself against this? I really don't know that I could have. I I did report that doctor to the medical board because I felt she put my life at risk. And I'm sure, I'm guessing it's just going to get blown up, but at least I did it. Yeah. And I have, you know, obviously written senators and congressmen. But even in Minnesota, we have a law that protects the doctors. But until the DEA backs off, I know most other pain patients in Minnesota say nothing's changed since the new law got passed. For context, this is a law that requires a search warrant in order for the DEA to target particular physicians. And the idea was that physicians should not feel threatened or scared to prescribe certain medications. And we also have a law in Minnesota that a doctor can prescribe what they feel the patient needs without fear of the state medical board. But they're still all afraid of the DEA. Why hasn't such a law uh, given a sense of comfort to physicians? From your assessment as a patient, where is the gap? I think it's still the overwhelming fear that the DEA can swoop in any day and take their license and take their house, their car, their bank account. And I just don't see anything changing until that issue gets settled. Mm -hmm. I, they just don't seem to want to give up. Have you At least that's a, my assessment. Have you as a patient ever felt that you should speak to the DEA or would like to convey your situation to the DEA so that they at least know some of the effects of what they're doing? I guess now maybe that I'm in hospice, I might have the courage to call them up. But before, I was always too afraid. They're just going to target you or target your doctor. For those who may not understand the nature of uncertainty and fear for chronic pain patients and the physicians that treat them and are maybe listening to your story for the first time, can you give a sense of when you noticed this fear and uncertainty coming into your clinical care, give a give a broader perspective as to how you first started noticing all of these things and when it really started impacting your care. Well, in 2016, my doctor and I discussed that the new guidelines were coming out, but he understood where I was coming from as a patient. I'd been his patient 20 years. Uh, we actually... Uh, went to high school together, so we've known each other literally our whole lives. And it was about 2018 that it started to just get that sinking feeling every month. Is this the month that I'm going to lose my care? Because it was happening to so many people around me. Yeah. And I thought it, it can happen to them, it can happen to me. Right. That's a, that's a tough ordeal. Why come out and tell your story? What's the driving factor? I think it's really important for people to know that even being in hospice might not protect you 
from getting the care that you deserve, getting the care you need. And right now in Minnesota, we do not have physician-assisted uh, suicide. Uh, they're talking about passing a bill like that. But right now, we don't have access to that. And so if I sought to go down that road, I couldn't because it's illegal in our state. Even if I went to a state where it was legal, if I come back here, which obviously this is my home, I it's not legal here. Okay. And so that is not, right now that's not an option. Yeah, and I, I wish I wish it was because uh, nobody wants to be in a coma for days or weeks on end. If you had a message to give to patients in similar situations who may be listening to this, watching you, what advice would you give them? One, that if you're not getting the care you deserve, that it's okay to fire your hospice company. Uh, I wouldn't be doing as well as I am today had I not gotten the courage up, even though the doctor tried to gaslight me into saying nobody would take care of me the way that I felt I should. Uh, you can fire them and you can hire a new company. And I know it's really tough out there to find a good caring doctor, but there are ones like my doctor who do care about their patients and did stand by them and did take care of them. They're few and far between, but they are out there. What practical steps would you give other patients to find such a physician? Call your insurance company, look online. What tips do you have? I would say to yep, call your insurance company. I, Talk to other patients. Talk to your family members. You want to look for a physician that really cares about you as a patient. Not just in and out of the door, but actually takes the time to get to know you as a person. Because then they're going to care about how your quality of life is. If they care yeah. about you as a person. No, that's well said. Lori, thank you so much for your time. For those of you who may be interested in getting a hold of you, is there any contact information that you're able to share? Just my uh, email at ardentstutters at comcast.com. And for those of you who are watching this on YouTube or the Daily Remedy podcast, the email will be listed in the comments section below. And with that, Lori, thank you so much for your time and thank you for the courage for sharing this story. Thank you, Jay.